Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Okay, my name is Tandeka. I'm currently studying BA Law. Well, I saw in the news, I think they had moved the panel to Cape Town, so they were just discussing about you know, the feasibility of free education in, in years to come. Uh, it's a good idea. I think it's definitely feasible, but then not now, probably in about 10, 15 years to come, because looking at the state of uh, economy in South Africa, I don't think it's actually possible right now, you know, because there's actually a lot of things that are going on, especially in the health sector, looking at the, just the, the current economic state. So I think it's, it's something that can be achieved, but just not right now. You know, when you look at the, the fees, it's true, they're quite high, but then the, the, the fact that they're actually funds to uh, borrow students' money so that they can, you know, pay it back after they've studied. I think it can be turned into a bursary instead of, you know, a loan. So I think it, it, it definitely can be, yeah, in, in the long term, not right now, yeah. In this week's episode, we find out more about the Commission of Inquiry into Higher Education, also known as the Fees Commission, chaired by Justice Jonathan Kerr. This commission was established in response to the Fees Must Fall campaign of 2015 by the government in order to look into the feasibility of fee-free higher education. Over the months since this commission was established, a number of civil society and educational institutions have made submissions to that commission. With us to discuss the work of the commission is Professor Glonipa Mokwena, who is an associate professor at the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Relations, WISER. Prior to joining WITS, which she did in 2015, she worked in the Anthropology Department at Columbia University in New York. She was appointed the chairperson of the WITS delegation to the Presidential Commission of Inquiry into Higher Education Funding. This delegation worked to gather opinions of the WITS community and compile a set of recommendations about how university education could become more accessible and how fees could be funded from sources other than students. As well as her work on the Fees Committee, Prof. McQuenna is the author of Magema Fuse, The Making of a Kolwa Intellectual, and has a strong research interest in South African intellectual history. So a very warm welcome to Professor Klonipa Mokwena. Thank you for joining us today. Perhaps you could start by giving us some background into the University Panel on Funding Models for Higher Education, which you were the chairperson of here at WITS. Can you tell us how this panel was constituted and why and what its purpose was? Thank you for inviting me. Basically, the panel was constituted as a response to the presidential announcement of the Hare Commission or the Fees Commission, as it's called as well. And I guess the Vitz executive, let me put it that way, made the decision 
that Vets's approach to the submission to the Hair Commission would be to have a panel that would then explore the different options for funding of higher education. So we took it as our starting point that we were not just interested in the fees issue, because I think the debate has made it seem as if fees are the only thing that universities have to deal with when it comes to funding. But actually we took as our starting point and the kind of brief that we were given was really about looking at how the whole sector can be funded and what are the things that are happening with the funding of the sector. So fees were just one portion of that. And so eight people were nominated. I mean, it took a bit of time. I was surprised that I was asked to do this because again, I'm not an expert on higher education. And as it turns out, no one is actually. <laughs> and this is where it becomes problematic, precisely because you would expect that, let's say, economists would know how something like this should be, or what the conversation even should be about. Or you would imagine that people who teach education or who deal with education would know. But actually, it's such a wide variety of issues that no one really is an expert. And this is what came through as we sat as a panel and try to decide what kinds of questions we were going to ask people, what kinds of submissions we were going to ask from people. So eventually we basically decided to have a free format submission in which we were not going to prescribe to people in what form they must make a submission. So people could make oral submissions, written submissions, people sent us emails, and we took all of those as submissions. So sometimes we got a one-line email, sometimes we would get a 10-page document from somebody. And we decided to treat those two things as equal, precisely because there's no way that you can say just because somebody has written a 10-page document, it means it's a more relevant submission than somebody who's written a one-sentence email. So we explored all those things by having open plenary and public meetings. We had a meeting on each vet's campus, and we tried to canvas as widely as possible. We interviewed some people. We, some people offered advice, and we took their advice. So we really had just like a wide sort of consultative working ethic that we were going to talk to as many people as possible. Um, and then there were some people that we didn't talk to whom we should have talked to maybe. But these are some of the things that you learn as you, as you go about a process that's open in this way, that you really almost are designing as you go along, deciding what works and what doesn't work. And then the difficult part was in writing the report. As I mentioned, we took it as a given that we were not just exploring the issue of fees, that we were talking about funding of higher education in general. So anything under that rubric, we took seriously. And then we also took it as a given that the call for fee-free education is a justified social justice call. And so we tried to frame the report in that way, as how do you answer the social justice question around higher education? We you know, highlighted the inequalities in South Africa, the history of exclusion in higher education, etc., etc. So we tried to frame it that way because, as I say, we took it as a given that it is a justified and justifiable call. And I think where our report is different is that we didn't try to find one solution. I mean, this is where the whole hybrid model comes in. And that was also based on the fact that the more that we talk to people, the more we realize that each person actually has even a different view of what mm. fees are. So even the word fees actually mm. means something completely different to different people. Mm. So some people think that it's just the, the money that students pay to the university. 
some people think of it as the holistic cost of university education, which again is also a, a contested point. How much does it actually cost to get a, a full degree and what do you include in that? So we'll come to the panel's recommendations in a moment, but right. before we get there, could you tell us a bit more about how the panel was constituted? Was it mainly representatives from academic staff? Or were there all members of the university community involved? Like I'm wondering if there were student representatives, administrative staff, management, or if it was mainly kind of academic research oriented members. It was mainly academics, but the way that it was done was that the students were consulted, which mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why it took a long time to actually mm -hmm. finalize the list of people. The SRC was consulted for their recommendations and if they wanted to change the list of people. I mean, there was eight of us, mm -hmm. and it was people across the different faculties and departments. And yeah, so that was the decision that was made already. Mm -hmm. As a chair, I didn't have a choice as to who I would have liked or and we did talk about the possibility of opening up the membership of the panel to other people. But then we just found that it was untenable because mm -hmm. if you open it up to one or two people, then other people say, well, I also want to be on the panel. And then there were also other ethical issues, like, for example, people who wanted to be on the panel because they were doing a dissertation on the funding of higher education. And then it's sort of like, well, can we really allow somebody who's then going to have a conflict of interest mm. about how they write about the panel, the working on the panel? So we had to discuss some of those issues about opening up the panel and what that would mean. But we basically decided to keep it to eight people. And what was the participation like? You mentioned that there were a number of consultative processes. Mm -hmm. So what kind of response were you expecting and did you get? Was it a positive? Was there a lot of input and feedback? Or was it quite difficult to get people to share their views and their ideas? It was a little bit of both. It was surprising that even though the meetings were advertised as open and public, very few people actually showed up to the meetings. I mean, if you compare the passion that went into the protests, there was very little passion for now this consultative process. There are many reasons. One could say it was at the wrong time. But I mean, we had we basically had a window time of something like 11 till 3 in the afternoon where people could come and talk to us. So we were there quite an extended period of time on those days. But what was really unbelievable was that the people who actually contributed often contributed with so much enthusiasm, so much thoughtfulness, and so much kind of working through. So, I mean, the youngest person who presented to, to the panel is a VETS honor student. And he had thought of every question that we could ask him, answered it all, and had created almost an entire funding system as a kind of model. And when you are in a room and somebody does that and takes your work seriously, it actually in some ways almost makes up for the fact that you didn't have a multitude of people presenting, that you only had a handful of people coming forward with ideas. Because then in some ways it also helped us focus. Because mm -hmm. if we had had thousands and thousands of submissions, it may have been difficult for us to focus on a few things. And so, as I say, I, we've got some really amazing suggestions that were almost foundational mm -hmm. to the way that we, we ended up drafting the report. Okay, so all of the suggestions from the community were compiled into mm -hmm. a set of recommendations, which were then taken to the higher education department. Yeah, no, to the commission. To I mean, the this commission. Is, yeah. Sorry, the, my lingo yes. is out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the whole idea mm -hmm. was that we were just doing this right for the commission, okay. submission to the commission. And how did that process go? How were 
the ideas, proposals that were made by the panel taken by the commission? Yeah. How were they received? Well, this is it's difficult to know because the, <laughs> I'm not sure because again here my mind is slightly diluted by the fact that in my very, very young life as an honor student, I actually did my honors project on commissions of inquiry mm -hmm. in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So there's a long history of commissions of inquiry. And so in my mind, I wasn't, because I know that history, I wasn't expecting responsiveness in any way. Because really what a commission does, it takes submissions and then sits as a commission and they just write their own report. Mm -hmm. So as, as a kind of, let's call it um, a tool of statecraft, mm -hmm. It works in a particular kind of way to, at the same time, create a sense of democratic consultation. But then at another level, it's really almost entirely up to the person who's chairing the commission, how they want to present the report. So the person who's chairing the commission ends up having a certain amount of power uh, in how they present what they heard, what happened during the submissions. and. We submitted, and I don't know if you remember the whole cycle, there was one deadline and then the deadline was extended. Mm -hmm. So we rewrote the report. So there was a deadline for the end of May. We finished our report and we rushed in and then we submitted the report and we submitted a request for an extension. And then that extension was granted. And then we had the end of June and we sat again as a panel and rethought some of the things that were in the report, rewrote some sections and then resubmitted the final mm -hmm report at the end of June. And the next thing that we heard from the commission was an invitation to appear in front of the commission, mm -hmm. which was not part of the original brief mm -hmm. of the commission. So the terms of reference of the commission were basically changed with the approval of the president to include public hearing. So we drove to Pretoria, me, Adam Habib, and Kathy Albertine and David Hornsby. So basically three people from the panel and then the vice chancellor. And we in front of the commission and we were asked questions some of them related to our report some of them nothing to do with the report but really it was about the judge and the justices and and the assessors who were there they it was a, it was about what they wanted to hear and what questions they had about the funding of higher education and so we're waiting to hear what's going to happen next after the submission are you optimistic about the work and prospects that might come out of the commission once it's finished its process of deliberation? Do you think it will be able to change policy or change kind of government's approach? Yeah, again, here, yeah, it's like, it all depends on which, which history you rely on. But in general, the, the difficulty with commissions of inquiry is that although they are, they are instruments, as I say, of statecraft, the state can literally just pick one sentence out of, a, out of the entire report mm -hmm. written by the chair of the commission and decide to only action one mm -hmm. sentence out mm -hmm. of. So it's still ultimately up to the state mm -hmm. as to how it reads mm -hmm. the report. Mm -hmm. So I have no doubt that Judge Hare will do a great job in presenting to the state what he thinks is a summation of the submissions. But really the issue becomes what will the state do about it? So those are two levels mm. of decision-making that don't really have anything to do with each mm. other. I doubt that Judge Hale will do a terrible job, mm. but really it's about the Ministry of Higher Education and the state mm. and the Treasury and how they read the report and what decisions they will make. Mm. And just if you're interested, the actual website of the Commission mm. 
has nearly every single report mm. that has been written about higher education in South Africa since the 1990s. So that gives you a sense of how huge the literature, if one wants to call it that, the literature on higher education in South Africa is, mm. but that over the years, again, the state has often just picked mm. one thing out of an entire report mm. or not paid any attention to the mm. report at all. And through this process of chairing the panel and preparing this report on behalf of WITS, did you get any insight into how other institutions were submitting and what kinds of reports and proposals they were making? Or was it more of a kind of institution-focused project? Yeah. In, in, in the lingo of public administration, we call it a black box. So it was a typical black box situation in which you have inputs, the black box and outputs. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew what was going on inside the black box. No mm -hmm. other institution tried to consult with us to find out what we were doing. There was no collaboration across the institution, mm -hmm. so we had no idea. So it was, especially when we were racing to the deadlines, mm -hmm. we didn't know whether other institutions were going to submit, whether they were going to wait for an extension, mm -hmm. all these kinds of issues. We just had to make mm -hmm. a decision as a panel mm -hmm. about how we were going to act on our mm -hmm. own. And that's a weakness, but it's also... Yes, an affirmation mm. of, of institutional autonomy, that there was absolutely nothing about the commission that necessitated cooperation mm. across the universities. I think um, that was strategic in that they didn't want too much kind of power blocking between institutions because they might have perceived that there would be shared interests or shared positions that might kind of evolve. And... No, it's just how universities in South Africa work. Mm. <laughs> Not I enough think, collaboration across institutions. Yes, yeah. but also because they're different. Mm -hmm. It's a very sad, sad story about mm -hmm. South African institutions. I think it's all about the fact that the word, the term public university mm -hmm. is actually much more nuanced than I think people often think. That even though the universities in South Africa are public, they largely function as separate entities mm -hmm. from each other. So that it doesn't matter what the issue is. Each one of them is going to have its own little tweak mm. on the issue. Mm. Okay, this is important for us, but this is not important for us. So everything from the urban-rural divide to a class divide. Mm. So if I could make an example, like if you had to ask some, somebody what's the difference between BITS and UJ, it will largely end up being about class and class issues. UJ may look at our report and our approach and say, no, that's you. That, those are your problems. They're not our problems. We have a different set of mm -hmm. problems. So really it's about how each institution perceives itself, mm -hmm. whether it, one calls it the hierarchy of higher education in South Africa, or one talks about this, the landscape of higher education in South Africa. And I think each institution basically had its own response. Mm -hmm. And from what I've seen, I think most institutions didn't take the commission seriously, but I'm putting that in quotation marks. I think people didn't think it was going to get to the point where the commission was actually doing public visible work. They sort of thought, oh, maybe we will submit, maybe we don't. And I think when people suddenly realized that it was serious, that's when they kicked into gear and started doing their own reports. But if you look at the way that other universities approached it, so for example, UCT, their vice chancellor, Max Price, went and presented in front of the commission. And I think many other universities did the same thing, where there wasn't even an attempt to consult with the rest mm. of the university. Oh, interesting. So, so Vitz's approach was arguably unique in that it did consult and try to be as broad-based as right, possible. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to mm. pat us too hard on the back, but I think mm. we did that quite well, in that we put a lot of serious thinking into 
what we were going to say to the commission, precisely because this may be the only mm. opportunity mm. that as a university we get mm. to actually tell the commission how we see the issue of the mm. funding of higher education. So we, as a panel, took it seriously mm. that this was something that we were doing mm. on behalf of the whole institution, even though we knew that that's not mm. the complete story. Mm. So let's turn our attention now to the kind of content of the report that was drafted mm. um, and some of the recommendations that were made. Mm. Maybe let's start with the issue of fees. You know, yeah. this is the kind of rallying call right. um, that's defined a lot of public debate about access to university in the past yes. year or so. Yeah. We're currently in a moment where we're waiting to see what's going to happen right. with the next supposed fee increase. Yeah. So what was your panel's recommendations in relation to the possibility of fee-free education? Right, right, right. Well, I would say our first recommendation really was a redefinition of what fees actually mean. Because at the presentation to Judge Hare, this took us nearly 20 minutes to explain to Judge Hare because he kept on throwing it back at us. And we were saying, yes, it's all good and well to talk about what I would call the nominal value of a university, so the price tag that gets put on a degree. But actually for most students who presented to us, that wasn't really the issue. It was all the other costs around accessing university education that students really meant when they were saying fees. Mm. So it's simple things, say like the cost of transport between provinces. Mm. So, I mean, if you're a student from Limpompo and you have to travel to Cape Town for university, that's a cost that is not covered by anybody. It's no one's job, as it were, besides the assumption that your parents should pay for your transport. Things like accommodation, things like the cost of books, but also all the other costs that are linked to students, but that the students never quite see on their bill from the university. So everything from the cost of buying books to the costs of providing infrastructure to universities. So all those things, students in one way or another referred to those costs. And a crisis that's also happening globally is the whole question of students going hungry. I mean, this is like very surprising that in the 21st century, somebody would go to university and not even be able to afford to eat, even if they have a full scholarship. And I think the New York Times had a, an expose of the fact that even students at elite universities were sleeping in cupboards eating once a day, etc, etc. So those are all the issues that we ask the Commission to consider when it reads and sees the word fees. That it's not just the single price tag of how much it costs to get a degree from a university. So that was the first argument that we tried to present. And then the second one was that it's also not, from our point of view, viable to just keep shifting around the pot of money that we have. From the discussions we had with people, we reached the conclusion that somehow we have to find new money, that simply rearranging the budget is not going to solve the problem. Do you mean university budgets or state budgets? State budgets. Okay. But there's a little bit of the university mm -hmm. budgets as mm -hmm. well. There's all sorts of questions of efficiency, like mm -hmm. how well do the universities actually spend the money that they get. But from a, a state perspective, from a treasury perspective, we basically reached the position that it doesn't make any sense to keep arguing about whether or not there should be less money spent on, say, defense, and then that money be put in higher education, or less money spent on healthcare or infrastructure or roads. Or so 
everyone can have their own imagined reallocation of the budget, but then I don't think that helps precisely because everyone can redraw the budget in 20 million ways, but it doesn't really release new money. So this is why our report focused then on how do you create that new money? Where would that money come from? And we basically ended up recommending a much bigger role for the private sector because the private sector in South Africa is actually one of the biggest beneficiaries of public university education as it exists. Most graduates, when they finish, they go and work in the private sector. So we thought about a greater role uh, for the private sector. Are we talking about more bursaries and more sponsorships and more grants? Or are we talking about a different way of the state taxing private sector and then redirecting some of those funds back into the public Right. Yeah, because again, here, from what we heard from people we're talking about, the taxation system is already extremely generous Mm. towards the private sector. They already get a lot of perks Mm. from giving money to the higher education sector. But one of the things that you notice is that that funding is skewed. The private sector gives to what it wants to Mm. give. It has a choice about who Mm. it gives the money to. So again, you end up with inequalities. Some universities will get more money from the private Mm -hmm. sector and some universities won't. So actually, one of the reasons why the idea of what are called special purpose entities became so attractive is that the private sector will have the option of, rather than being taxed, of giving money to a central fund, which then will distribute the money to all the universities. But it will be a a kind of Mm market-based instrument Mm -hmm. because all the money will be managed like an asset management fund. Mm -hmm. So that is an example of creating new money in Mm -hmm. which you say to the private sector, you can still give bursaries to universities, but now you have this other option. So it would be basically like creating an endowment Mm -hmm. for all the universities in South Africa. An endowment that would be publicly managed, state-managed. Right. The state would have a part, the universities would have a part, and then you'd obviously have society having a part Mm. as well. So you would structure it so that every sector of society basically contributes to how that fund would be managed. I would say that is the most shiny, sparkly, (laughs) innovative idea that we put in the report, Mm. this idea of a special purpose entity, which would be almost as if South African universities are adopting the kind of American endowment system but this would be an endowment for all the universities Mm -hmm. but and this is where the caveat is those kinds of new money take between 10 and 15 years to mature Mm -hmm. and for them to actually create the kind of money so it wouldn't be something that would have an immediate impact but it would be something that would be for the long term Mm -hmm. so that's a long-term solution Mm -hmm. and in the short-term solution we explored everything from taxation reform of NASFAS to the imposition of a special tax. I mean, we had all the, and they're all in the report, mm-hmm. a kind of graduate tax. But all of those bring up the single question that, again, people don't really want to talk about is, well, what would be the student's role? What would they give back? Because most of them are based on the assumption that the students would have to give something back. Because if you use the taxation system, then you have to answer the question, well, how do you keep funding that taxation system, right? Is it going to be the case that every single person who receives an education through fee-free education will then be compelled to work for a certain amount of time in South Africa? Because you could end up in a situation, as has happened in many African countries, where you fund free 
higher education, but then people leave the country and they go and work somewhere else. Mm. And then that you you lose basically. Mm. You lose all the money that you you, mm. you had you had spent on higher education. Mm. So how do you prevent that from happening mm. if you have so the, these are the issues that we considered in thinking about the short term solutions and how do you create this reciprocity so i would say that that's one of the major questions that we try to answer how do you create the reciprocity in which the state if or society funds students but then the students feel a certain amount of, of obligation to pay back do you do it in terms of money and set as they do in other countries where you say once you earn a salary of x amount and above then you have to pay back a portion of your loan or do you ask people to do community service, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And that is also a contentious issue mm. because, again, it has implications for people's life choices. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And what was the, the panel's position on the question of loans? Mm -hmm. Now, I know you've spoken a bit about how different taxation models might play out yeah. and some of the pitfalls that those might bring along. Mm. But what was the position on ways in which NSFAS could be reformed? Because mm -hmm. I know this, there's, a, I think, perhaps a lot of concern about, you know, students graduating with debt mm -hmm. that along with, you know, huge family obligations and expectations that it can effectively cripple them in terms of moving into right. a fully socially mobile and independent career. Right. So were there any specific views that the panel had on how the NSFAS system could be improved? Mm -hmm. Did that form part of your deliberations and discussions? Yes, we did look at that. So we basically came to the conclusion that it's not going to change much because if you simply increase the per capita, if you put it that way, per student mm -hmm. allocation of NSFAS, you are in some ways just creating more debt for the students. Because if you simply say, okay, we're going to shift from a cap of something like 70 plus thousand rands per student to a cap of twice that 140 plus thousand you are simply giving the student bigger debt to repay in the future so what we did look at was actually how that debt could be shared so that the student ultimately is not paying back the full amount of money it says a portion of that amount of money is paid back by the employer of the student especially if the student maybe goes into public service or any future employer. So when you employ somebody, you also help contribute to paying back their debt because you are benefiting from mm -hmm. the education. That So we looked at those kinds of possibilities. Mm -hmm. The way that Adam Habib, I think, put it to the judge, again, here, Judge Hare pressed us on the issue of why we were saying that there's an aversion. And this, again, is a global issue, that people are becoming more averse to this kind of debt. And Judge Hare couldn't understand what we meant. And I think Adam Habib ended up saying, what we're trying to say is that there is almost a cultural meaning of debt, which is often not considered when we talk about debt and imposing debt on students. Whether it's about stigma or it's about the feeling that it's a burden, plus the burdens that other people have to carry socially. But again, this kind of almost social implication of debt that is often not considered when people construct these mm -hmm. models. So we tried to talk about that a little bit in the report, but really, we, we really focused on how it could be that the debt could be shared or the debt could be halved. I mean, the, one of the models that we received as a submission showed how you can actually lessen the burden if somebody, whether it's the state or the future employer, keeps paying off the debt while the student is studying. Mm -hmm. So different models like that, but actually, you find a way to try and 
reduce that debt so that the student is not suddenly mm. presented with a bill basically when they finish saying mm. this is how much you owe the state. Mm. Okay and what about the the question of whether fees should be free for all students or right. only for those who don't have the economic capacity to pay. Right. What kinds of views did you see coming in from the community and, and how did you summarize your position as a panel in your report? Yeah, I mean, that again revolves down to a simple concept of means testing. How do you test which people qualify for that kind of graduated fee structure? And one of the recommendations was that the fee system should be based on how much you paid for high school. <laughs> because in South Africa, a lot of people pay a lot of money to send their children to very expensive private schools. So if you use that as a kind of, well, this is how much you can afford, and then structure each person's fees according to that. But that kind of individuation, as one would call it, also creates its own problems. Because sometimes people are middle class on paper, but they're not really middle class in terms of what they can afford, which is why you have this concept of the missing middle, where their parents have all the income and, and social position and class position that makes them look middle class. But in reality, they may also be struggling with debt in order to fund their child's education. So we considered some of those issues, but really it's about how do you do means testing? And as I say, one of the suggestions that was made is instead of asking people about their incomes, you simply base it on how much money they were paying for high school education. Mm. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are a lot of possible scenarios that were sketched yeah. out in the report. So where do you think this is going to go next? I mean, uh -huh. speaking not as a representative of the panel or of the university, but in your from your own viewpoint, and as someone who has, even though you claimed you didn't have much expertise on higher <laughs> education, who clearly does um, after this long process, where do you think we're going to go in terms of government's kind of next steps or policies? Yeah. I think the government has basically taken it as a given that it is not going to fund a free-for-all higher education sector. And I think the reasons that the government has taken this position are justifiable in the sense that we live in a country of extreme inequality and already South African universities are quite selective in who they admit. So even if you have fee-free education, it's actually going to be quite selective. It's not just going to be that somebody will be able to walk off the street and say, I'm here to study at university. The universities will still in some ways retain the right to exclude students and not admit students. On the basis of academic of, of, performance. Yeah, yeah. Right. And as we know in South Africa, that academic performance is largely determined by what school you went to. Right. And so there is that question that really is facing government is well, how do you structure the education system so that it's fair but it doesn't give the wealthy a free pass because if you have fee free education then you are in some ways subsidizing very wealthy people mm. who can actually afford to pay and you're you're sort of relying on the idea that taxation will catch the money that they would have paid but that's not really as logical as people i think sometimes assume it is because just because you are taxing people doesn't mean you are necessarily taxing the really wealthy because you're really taxing the middle class for, for most of the time so I think that's the one thing, that's the short-term issue that the state, I think, is considering, is how do you balance the inequalities mm -hmm. with this urgent need, basically, for universities to move on? Because we can't also 
remain in this zero percent stasis. The universities need money and it has to come from somewhere. Is but, the state going to plug that gap? Because we've seen state funding to the university sector decline in real terms right. since 94, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any potential that they're going to find a way to bring that up to where it needs to be? If I had to look into my crystal ball and try and predict what's going to happen, I think there's going to be a lot of trimming down of the higher education sector. Because the main real limit is that we only have so many universities. Because in the long term, the solution is also in part to build more universities so that there's more people can go to university. So that's a long term thing. And again, that takes 10, 15 years. So if you if the state were the most kind of egalitarian in its vision, then it would say in the long term we're gonna build more universities. But in the short term, we actually have to make the current system more efficient. So that could involve anything from the state, as it has already signaled, being um, more aggressive in collecting outstanding NASFAS loans, the state being more vigilant and supervisory as to how universities spend the money that they get. So the state forcing universities to be more accountable for their spending. But it could also mean that the state decides that it has money and that it's going to spend more money. But I think that money will come with conditions. So this is my short-term prediction, my crystal ball, that if the state does give universities more money, that money will come with more conditions rather than less. And so the question is, what will be those conditions mm -hmm. that the state will then impose mm -hmm. on, on this new infusion mm -hmm. of state funding of higher education? Mm -hmm. Do you think we're going to see fee increases announced soon? And if so, what do you think might be the reaction of the student body? Uh, yeah, as I say, I don't think that it's the 0% stasis is sustainable. Mm. Universities need money somehow. But I first, let me, I think, clarify what I think is a misperception, which is that if you attend a fee-free university, you don't get a bill from the university. Mm. So I've looked at the case of Germany, for example. What ends up happening in Germany is that even though the students attend, the students in plural, attend university for free the university bills them for services so for example you could end up in a situation where the university bills you for internet access the university will bill you for access to sports facilities the universities will bill you for access to medical and healthcare on campus etc 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 so even in societies where they have fee-free education it's not zero you you know you're not paying zero you're literally just paying a kind of smaller fee but it's still you're paying something to the university. And that may be the better solution in the short term as well for universities to do, Americans call it being nickel and dimed, where they break down the actual fees into smaller chunks, and then the state takes the portion that is about tuition, and then the other chunks the students pay themselves. So for example, if you're a student and you think you don't want to use the university sports facilities, then you don't pay that fee. But that kind of nickel and dime system also has its own drawbacks, mm -hmm. precisely because then the student cannot predict in advance mm -hmm. how much those things add up to. Those are all the solutions that could be tried in the short term. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we can go on indefinitely mm -hmm. with a kind of brinkmanship between mm -hmm. the students and the state. Mm -hmm. Something's got to give. As they say, somebody's got to blink. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> at this point in time, I wouldn't want to predict who the person mm -hmm. who's going to blink is. Mm -hmm. But... 
the universities themselves cannot go on indefinitely without money because that's ultimately the issues how long can the universities hold out without money and from a historical perspective some south african universities were in this position in the 1980s and 1990s mm. so the state has an interest in preventing that from repeating itself i mean mm. i think today there was a headline about the university of zululand and how much the vice chancellor there is getting paid and it's like a repeat of the headlines of the 1990s. And so I think the state also is trying to prevent that from happening. The state doesn't want bankrupt mm. universities because it will cost the state money mm. to revive and sustain those universities mm. beyond bankruptcy. Well, let's hope that the state is listening yeah. <laughs> and that they do something to end the impasse. Yeah. Um, because I do think there's something just a little unfair about that financial burden being shifted onto students. Yeah. Who, especially those who are working so hard and trying so desperately to improve their lives and the lives of their families, right? right. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, but as I say, it's like this issue is it cuts across the whole globe. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I don't know if you. So one of the examples we put in our report is about the Cooper Union which is an example of a university that from its inception in like 1859 mm. was a fee-free institution. Mm. And four years ago, five years ago, they decided that they couldn't afford that anymore, mm. that they needed to impose fees on students. Mm. So you have almost the inverse of a university that was fee-free from mm. its inception in the 19th century. But come 2013, I think it was, they the board of trustees said we have to impose fees we're bankrupt we don't mm. have any money so the the debate goes back and forth even globally mm. because mm. i think it's really about things like the changing costs mm. of um, running universities mm. and the fact that many universities are trying to attract the best mm. personnel in at every level from mm. the executive mm. to the janitorial mm. and support staff you want the best, but how do you attract the best mm. in a market system? You pay people more. Mm. And where would you get the money? It has to come from somewhere. So you end up in this great big cycle mm. in which the universities just need more and more money. And then from an outsider's perspective, it looks like a black hole. Mm. It's like, but where is the money going to? We're giving you all this money, but where, where are the results? Mm. Because from society's perspective, society will then say, well, we want astrophysicists mm. to come out of the system. We don't want any more people coming out with Bachelor of Arts degrees in religious studies mm. that mm. the university sex since we're paying so much money for it, it must do what we want as society. And if I had to suggest a different kind of conversation, that's the conversation because I think the general public is largely left in the dark as to what it is that universities really do. And they ultimately will be paying the taxes that mm. fund universities. And they need to be brought into the conversation so we can have a larger debate mm. about what people actually expect mm. out of the higher education sector. Mm. Because all those things end up just being hidden in assumptions and everyone holding their own mm. assumptions about what one expects. And then when you have protests like last year's protests, then everyone again makes their own assumptions mm. about what those protests mm. mean and where they come from. Is it a class issue? Is it a race issue? Is it about hierarchy? Mm. Is it about management style? Is it about... And everyone ends up having their own conversation instead of us having a conversation in the society. As I record this, students at WITS and universities around the country are mobilizing and trying to shut down campuses in protest of Minister Blade Nzimande's speech yesterday outlining the government's recommendations on fee increases. 
In that announcement, Minister Nzimande stated that universities should set their own fee increases of no more than 8%, and that the government would fund poor students so that they would effectively be exempt from that inflation, yet of course it would still be liable for fees without the increase. Students, however, continue to demand free education. What are your views on the work of the Fees Commission and government's recent announcement? What are your views on appropriate forms of protest? How can we achieve more accessible education? No doubt we will need to keep asking these questions and keep listening to everyone's views as we work towards finding solutions. I'm studying a Bachelor of Arts with majors in economics and philosophy. Higher education in South Africa is a complicated issue. In terms of fees and funding, I don't think South Africa has properly made a solution for South African students to be able to access higher education. Um, it's difficult from the lower middle class going into the poorer people of our country for us to access education um, and there are a great many people who do qualify for a higher education institution that don't get access because of either a lack of funding or a lack of proper planning as to what they can do with their matric certificates and where they can go so would blade he's, he's the minister of education so it's his duty as the elected representative of government in the Department of Higher Education to take care of all of those issues, which at this point in time he's failing to do. Okay, my name is Taban Kozo. I am studying aeronautical engineering. Um, the Commission of Inquiry, uh, I think it is a, a good thing, right? It, it, it focuses on um, students' problems like um, the need for funding especially for the students who cannot afford the, the university fees. So it can like come up with strategies and new ways um, to fund the students. So I can say it simply makes life easier for us. As, as they have done things like they, they took the step um, to actually put the initiative to the government. So for, for I as a student, I think it is a good thing since it shows that they actually care about the students. Like taking into consideration the number of students in varsity, like I think it's it's a very big number. So if they say that um the fees must fall, like I don't think that's gonna be possible because like there's too many students like who cannot afford um to pay for their fees. So uh, I think the government is gonna be running in a loss since um not all of the students are actually graduating. So. They, I think the investment is not um, that much worth it. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Pitts University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Pitts. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mihita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by Balungi Lembeyane. 
Thanks to Shonipa Mukwena, Tandega, Mangaliso, and Tabang for their time. Yogan Miko created our jingles. <laughs>